BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It was the Thursday before Christmas and all through the House, Senate and media were losers, losers and more losers. The show starts now. It's almost Christmas, and you know what that means. Time to celebrate the birth of baby Jesus and crown some losers of the week. So let's get started. First on my list this week is our very own Transportation Security Administration, which is due to spend over $18 million bucks to make passenger screening more non-binary friendly. In addition to new high-definition technology that will supposedly better scan all the body parts, except for the ones some choose to cut off, the new TSA system will allow those who feel they've been misgendered to be rescreened before submitting to a physical pat-down. Now, TSA touts this new woke process as a way to advance civil rights, but really, it's just another waste of taxpayer dollars on a woke agenda that very few people give a crap about, but sounds good as a virtue signal. So let's do a little math, shall we? TSA, which has about a 90% failure rate, is spending $18.6 million on this new process to appease 0.1% of the population. To quote Francis, talk about pissing your money away. I hope you kids see what a silly waste of resources this is. But speaking of giant money suckers, my loser two this week is the new Avatar film Way of Water, which reportedly cost Disney $350 million to make, but according to its director James Cameron, the flick would need to take in more than $2 billion to break even. But that seems highly unlikely, not only because it made less than expected in its opening weekend by a lot, but because even the liberals are triggered by it. So the whole premise of the Avatar series is to be woke, environmental, and pro-indigenous habitants, which is great for those who like that kind of crap, except even they them didn't like it. <laughs> Apparently, white actors made to look like blue alien people are appropriating indigenous culture. I guess James Cameron couldn't find any nine-foot-tall blue people to fill the role. What a racist. Folks, this goes to show that even when the libs of Hollywood try to be woke, they still fail to be woke enough to appease green hair culture. And personally, I think the film is too long, too weird, and you couldn't pay me to watch it anyway. I'd rather watch soccer, which, by the way, thank God that is over. But anyway, on to some more effed up liberal culture. My third losers of the week are an array of media outlets who are dead set on discouraging parenthood as a way to save the planet. Yes, apparently Mother Earth is now more important than an actual mother. But whether you're a mother or a birthing person, if you can squeeze out a human from some part of your body, you are a part of the climate change crisis, or at least according to thought leaders such as Prince Harry, Miley Cyrus, The New York Times, ABC, CNN, NBC, and AOC. Their whole twisted premise is that more people equals more pollution, so we shouldn't add any more people, and instead should maybe even subtract a few. Ugh which now makes the push for COVID vaccines make a lot more sense. Folks, those are my losers of the week. Merry Christmas. Y'all get some non-binary free-range solar panels in your stockings. But still ahead, speaking of climate change, my next guest pushes back against the tree-hugging alarmists and makes the moral case for fossil fuels. Alex Epstein joins me next. 
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We all know this administration worships the idea of worshiping the environment, but mostly when it gives them an excuse to waste our hard-earned tax dollars on their most prized virtue signal. It's getting so bad we're not only wasting money on it here in the U.S., but also sending billions to other countries so as they may abandon reliable energy for unicorn dust and wishful thinking, too. Joining me now to debunk all of the tree-hugging BS is energy expert and author Alex Epstein. Alex, I always appreciate when you just go after this whole climate change hoax and you put people in their place with actual facts and not feelings. But the agenda rolls on. I mean, this administration, even more than the Obama administration, is really dedicated to its tree-huggery. And I don't see an end in sight. What do you see as the best way for us to combat not only the narrative, but this legislation that's money-sucking that's being put forward seemingly on a daily basis? So thanks for having me. Uh, I think I, I think of it as it's a climate catastrophe hoax, not a climate change hoax. So I think people people equate the idea that we impact climate with some, which I agree with. Uh, you know, it's warmed at one degree Celsius in the past hundred plus years, and I think we've contributed to that. They equate that with climate catastrophe, and that is a big mistake. And then they also equate that with ignoring the benefits of fossil fuels. So the way people think about fossil fuels, they don't think about it rationally, like a prescription drug, you know, where you carefully weigh the benefits and the side effects. They ignore the benefits, and then they catastrophize the side effects. And I think it's really helpful to think of it that way because when you're talking to people, you can say, hey, what about all these huge benefits of fossil fuels that no one is talking about? Once you think about those, it's it's really amazing because they provide 80% of the world's energy. They're still growing, particularly in the parts of the world that care most about cost-effective energy. The world needs far more energy. We have 3 billion people using less electricity than a typical American refrigerator. And there are no alternatives that can replace fossil fuels in the near future. And they also, by the way, keep us safer from climate, things like heating and air conditioning and irrigation. They've actually made us 50 times safer from climate-related disaster death in the past 100 years. So if you start thinking about the benefits of fossil fuels and you think about our climate impacts in a very reasonable, precise way, you become really pro-fossil fuels. So I remember from your book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which you have behind you and you and I have discussed many times before, I remember you talking about how these developing nations, especially these African nations, they need fossil fuels. And it's very elitist of Americans and others in developed nations to say, no, you need to move away from fossil fuels. It's really robbing these other countries of their ability to become industrialized, their ability to compete, their ability to take care of their own people and provide some sort of a resource that their people can depend on and profit from. And that brings me to this latest initiative, sending billions to Africa to, to close their coal plants. When you heard that, what did you make of it? Is this just more of the same? And it's it's really sad on a number of fronts. I mean, I've been to South Africa before. You know, coal is is the basis of any prosperity that they have. And every nation that rises out of poverty does it using fossil fuels. You look at what's happened to China, what's happened to India, dramatic increases in life expectancy and GDP. These are powered by, both of them have increased their fossil fuel use by seven times 
in the last 40 plus years. So there's a clear path to prosperity. And what we're trying to do with South Africa now and with some other nations is we're basically paying off corrupt leaders to not use the fuels that are necessary to bring them prosperity. So what, what poor countries need is they need the lowest cost, most reliable energy they can get. And in almost every case, that's going to be fossil fuels. So we're really paying dictators or let's just say corrupt leaders to keep their people poor. So that, I mean, that's the opposite of what the so-called left uh, claims to stand for. That's why I wonder what the motivation is in all of this, because as you discussed in the opening there, you know, there is impact on the climate. We do need to take care of Mother Earth. You know, I'm from a rural state where we care for the earth. We love the earth. Our air is clean in South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, you name it. Those are places that care about the environment. But this push this push for the Green New Deal, this green agenda, this push for other nations to adopt it, and then this push for these international organizations to mandate it, what is the end goal? Is it really to save the environment and to save Mother Earth, or is there something else here that you think is part of this push? Well, I think there's two senses in which you can think of save the environment. So are you saving the environment or the planet for human beings? Or are you saving them from human beings? And I think the key idea is you're saving them from human beings. So it's not really about clean air and clean water and natural beauty. Because if you like those things, you need to embrace fossil fuels. For one, fossil fuels get us off wood and animal dung. And in terms of natural beauty, they actually allow us to enjoy nature and have a beautiful environment and access the most beautiful parts of nature. So the key point I make in Fossil Future, my new book uh, in particular, is that the way we're thinking about energy is all based on saving the planet from human beings versus improving the planet for human beings. And I think once you realize that it's an anti-human agenda, at least among many of the leaders, their policies make a lot of sense. Yeah, this globalist agenda is very odd to me. The Bill Gates of the world and, of course, others, they do seem to talk about depopulating as a solution. You know, I just talked about in my opening segment here how so many media outlets and thought leaders are pushing for people to have fewer children or not have kids at all because how it could impact and harm the planet. They're saying that people shouldn't have pets anymore because they're worried about the impact that pets could make on the environment. We know that they want to tax emissions from livestock, from their burps and their farts. I mean, at what point does this not just become laughable to most Americans and to most citizens of the world? I don't know, but it's part of this big global agenda. Another thing I want to ask you is because you know, I remember when it used to be big oil and everybody would blame the Exxons of the world. And it was like they had so much power, so much monopoly. They had such a, a strong lobby, especially here in the U.S. But now that's been, in, at least in my perspective, completely replaced by the green lobby and these green thought leaders and the Green New Deal. How did that happen? And is their lobby more powerful than even big oil? I think there's there's been this dominant push to, you know, what, what I'm saying, save the planet from human beings, the idea that we are bad in some way, that our impact is bad and needs to be reduced or eliminated. And then once that idea exists and it's been really popularized, what happens is there are a lot of hangers on who try to profit from the idea. And this so-called green energy industry is a lot of this. So they portray themselves as, oh, we've got this amazing, cleaner, safer, lower cost, more reliable solution. But if they had that, why don't they just compete on the market? We saw with the recent so-called Inflation Reduction Act, they wanted you know, $400 billion 
in new subsidies, and plus they get all sorts of other preferences. And what's happening is people like this idea of, of being green. They don't think it through. They don't realize it's really an anti-human idea. And so then these people sell green energy. And yeah, they have an enormous, enormous lobby. And it's really wrecking our grid. I mean, I know you're not in California anymore, but I assume you saw when Newsom announced, hey, we're banning internal combustion engines. And then five days later says, no charging your EVs. And we have three, we're at 3% EV penetration. So California, you know, we have record high electricity prices this week. It's just, you're, you're opposing reliable energy and then you're subsidizing and mandating unreliable inferior energy that can't compete on the market. It leads to really bad consequences. I want to talk about those electric vehicles as well, because I think a lot of people get an electric vehicle because it makes them feel good makes them feel like they've done something, not unlike this entire climate change alarmist agenda. It's all about making people feel as though they've saved Mother Earth and make them feel like they've symbolically hugged a tree, if you will. But when it comes to electric vehicles, if you actually look into it, and I know that you know far more than me, so I want to dig into it, what the emissions are from building and in making an electric vehicle, operating electric vehicle, actually more so than an internal combustion engine. And they say over the life of the vehicle, it doesn't compare. But when you talk about these batteries for these electric vehicles, tell my viewers what the process is to extract something like that, where it's coming from and why that might be problematic. One point here is just EVs, like any form of energy, they're high impact processes. So with EVs, you know, making the battery, mining the materials, processing the materials, manufacturing these giant batteries, it's very, uh, it's very intensive in a lot of ways. It impacts our environment. And I think that's fine as long as it's cost effective. If you think you're doing something with an EV, you're not impacting nature or you're just radically reducing CO2 emissions, that is that is not what is uh, what is happening. Now, I think EVs are great as a potential option, but they have to be cost effective for consumers to mandate and subsidize these things that are not cost effective for the vast majority of people is just harming them. Plus, the main sin that's going on is we are mandating more electric vehicles and more electric electric appliances in general while we are reducing the supply of reliable electricity. So we've been shutting down coal plants, shutting down nuclear plants, in some in many cases opposing gas plants. As I've documented, people can check out energytalkingpoints.com. The EPA's plans could lead to 20% of our reliable capacity being shut down in the next seven years. So we have more electricity demand, less electricity supply. It's just another case of people not thinking about what's good for America and what's good for humans. This actually impacts me personally because I'm from South Dakota, as I mentioned. And on day one of his presidency, Joe Biden canceled the Keystone XL pipeline. That had been permitted for years. Construction was moving along. People in that area, in that town, opened businesses, expanded their businesses because they were really relying on those jobs. They were relying on the economic impact, especially in a small state like South Dakota. Keystone XL was a big deal to cancel it. And I talked to a lot of people in that area. I actually went interviewed people for Fox Nation and experts like yourself. And they said, hey, listen, this thing was supposed to be zero emissions. You know, the, the company had already vowed to offset anything that was created. It's the safest way to transport. It was all for a virtue signal. I want to dig into that a little bit because we use that as a talking point, Keystone XL. But a lot of people don't really know why we should make an argument for it. Let's help them out. Let's look right now at the global energy situation where the world is desperately short of oil. And look what, you know, Biden, who ran on, I guarantee you we're going to end fossil fuel, has been begging Venezuela, 
begging Saudi Arabia, often failing at the begging because we've been put in this inferior position. And yet we have Canada, an amazing ally that has this almost limitless deposit called the Canadian oil sands. And Keystone XL was a major way of bringing that oil to market. We also have refineries that are very well suited toward that type of oil. So that's part of why we're trying to get it from Venezuela because it's sort of comparable. So it's just the main tragedy involved is we just had a chance to dramatically increase the global supply of oil through this pipeline and other comparable efforts. And we just destroyed it. But not only that, think about what this means for other projects because TransCanada are now called TC Energy. I mean, they invested billions and billions of dollars in this. What do you think future investors, other companies are going to conclude when it comes to building vital projects, including vital infrastructure? They're not going to want to do it because it's too risky because you know that a Joe Biden can just kibosh it at any moment. Let's talk about the last thing I want to talk to you about. There's a lot of Americans that are going to be traveling for the holidays. We know that airline tickets are up because of fuel prices. We know that gas prices are up because of fuel prices and because we don't have that American energy independence that we once had under a president, Donald Trump. But looking ahead for those that don't have an electric vehicle because they can't afford a Tesla or other vehicle and they still do rely on and filling their vehicles with gas. What do you project the next six months is going to be like as far as gas prices? And are the American people going to be able to afford what's coming their way? You know, it's it's hard to tell because the thing is so there's going to be something negative because the, the one thing that'll keep them low is a global depression or even recession, right? Because then you have lower demand, but that's not a good situation because it's a recession uh, or a depression. Not that I'm predicting a depression, but there's a lot of fear of global recession. What's what's happening though that we know is we are not supplying enough oil to the market because we have hostility toward oil investment, oil production, oil transportation, oil refining. And this administration just keeps doubling down on that and they're encouraging allies to do the same. You see this with the recent COP27, you see attack after attack after attack on the oil that is the basis of our standard of living. So what, what we know that we're doing really bad things, we know that for sure the price will be way higher than it needs to be, and it could get really bad. So we, we, need, to oppose, we need to advocate what I call energy freedom. And if people want to learn more about this and how to make these arguments, check out the website, energytalkingpoints.com. And also my new book, uh, Fossil Future, has a lot of detail on this. Always appreciate you breaking this down for people because it's something that conservatives and Republicans talk about, but we don't always feel like we're armed to really talk about it, especially because of the zealots on the other side who really do worship the religion of climate change. So sometimes it's hard to make the argument, even though the facts are indeed on our side. Alex, thank you so much for everything that you do in this space. Thanks for being with me. Merry Christmas and happy holidays to you. And uh, hopefully Merry we'll Christmas. talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Tommy. All right, still ahead. Ukrainian President Zelensky spoke to Congress last night, and in case you're wondering, yeah, he wants more money. Well, my final thoughts are next. Apparently, $70 billion plus an additional $45 billion of our American tax dollars isn't enough for Ukrainian President Zelensky. I don't know if Vladimir Zelensky is an ungrateful welfare queen, as Don Jr. called him, but he sure knows how to get what he wants, and I have some final thoughts. For over a year now, the United States has bent over backward for Ukraine, and for the first six months or so, it was understandable. But it's not anymore, given the fact there doesn't seem to be an end in sight. We've already given Ukraine, and when I say Ukraine, I mean the government of Ukraine, because who really knows, $70 million. And the new monstrosity of an omnibus spending bill allocates another $45 billion 
plus, just to be extra, a Ukrainian independence park in Washington, D.C. But all that ain't enough for Zelensky because he's here in the United States panhandling and shaking us down for more. No word yet if he'll be doing any magazine photo shoots while in country. But if he's looking for a co-model, I hear Brittany Griner is free. But for now, here's this. Financial assistance is also critically important. And I would like to thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for both financial packages you have already provided us with and the ones you may be willing to decide on. Your money is not charity. It's an investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most responsible way. We have artillery. Yes. Thank you. We have it. Is it enough? Honestly, not really. We've given him billions of dollars and he couldn't wear a suit. But anyway, I got to hand it to him. He just delivered a better State of the Union address than Joe ever could, mostly because he was awake. And even with his thick accent, he has a better grasp of the English language. It was a smooth speech. He said all the right things. And I'm sure a lot of folks are ready to start throwing dollars his way like it's a Las Vegas strip club. But, you know, at the risk of sounding insensitive, how much is enough here? And no, liberals, that does not make me a Putin sympathizer to pose that question either. No, to be a Putin sympathizer, I'd have to want to give Russia money and or give them back their arms dealer in exchange for a basketball pothead. No, not me. That was y'all. But I do think I speak for many millions of Americans when I say I'm sick and tired of sending American money to other countries to fight their wars, defend their borders, and feed, house, and subsidize their people. Good Lord. Look at our own border that our own Congress's spending bill prohibits us from defending. Not to mention the homeless Americans and even more horrifically homeless American veterans we apparently can't afford to aid. Enough of this. Democrats and rhinos, man, they just can't decide who they want to hand more of our tax dollars to, illegals or Zelensky, so they pick both and leave us with the bill. Typical bureaucrat crap right there. You know, I'm not cold-hearted, and I feel for the people of Ukraine, but how long are we going to fight this for them, and how much more are we going to send? At some point, the purse strings got to tighten up, and if that makes me sound harsh, well, just call me Scrooge. America first. Bah humbug. Those are my final thoughts, and a very Merry Christmas from me to you. From Nashville, God bless, and take care.